every American citizen must have an equal right to vote. The administration of elections is primarily a state and local responsibility. Whether you voted for the very first time or waited in line for a very long time, by the way, we have to fix that. Welcome to High Turnout, Wide Margins. This is Brianna Lennon. I'm the county clerk in Boone County. And with me is my co-host. Eric Fade, Director of Elections in St. Louis County, Missouri. And today we have a special guest. We have Tammy Patrick from Democracy Funds. And uh, we are going to be talking about all sorts of things related to the mail and communications. But first, we wanted to let Tammy introduce herself a little bit. So a little bit about your career path and how you've ended up kind of the voice of both elections and the mail. Absolutely. It's just, it's so great to see you both. I'm um, I'm thrilled to be here. I'm glad you're doing this podcast. I think it's going to be um, really an exciting addition to all of the, the platforms that election officials have to get information and to hear from one another, um, particularly in these times when we can't see each other face to face and um, and break bread, as they say. Um, so I currently serve as the senior advisor at the Democracy Fund. I started in elections marking test decks for a primary election in 98 um, as a temporary worker for ESNS and in Maricopa County uh, in Arizona. I had moved out to Arizona and had gotten a job at the phone company and they went on strike before I could start training. So figured I needed to do some temporary job, went down to Kelly Services. They saw how fast I could type, which was not fast. And the next day um, got a call to go and mark ballots test voting equipment. What in the world was that all, all about? I was, I was, I was mystified and slightly mortified because I'm like, what do you mean you want me to mark a bunch of ballots? So I went down, marked the ballots, understood then about logic and accuracy tests. The strike ended and I went to work for the phone company for four or five years. But I kept thinking about the sound of ballot going through a central tabulator. The, the sight of literally millions of ballots being processed and counted and all of the effort that it goes into. And I just kept thinking about it. And then 2000 happened, 2002 midterms, and I left my corporate job, went to work as the supervisor of recruitment for Maricopa County elections, um, overseeing about a dozen or so people that hired the 8,000 poll workers, and they call them board workers in Arizona, and uh, took a two thirds pay cut <laughs> to go do that job. Um, but was thrilled that I did. Two week, two months into the job, uh, the Department of Justice came knocking and wanted to know about our language assistance program, which we hired bilingual poll workers, but there wasn't a formal program. So within the first two months on the job, I was interfacing with DOJ um, attorneys and trial lawyers uh, and realized very quickly the importance of the role that everyone plays in our democratic process. So within the year, um, former county recorder Helen Purcell, we created the Federal Compliance Officer, which we totally made up that, that title. I thought it sounded pretty badass, um, and so we kept it. And I went on to do all of our preclearance um, when we were under uh, uh, the Voting Rights Act, did all of our, our preclearance um, reports and really kind of started um, diving into making sure we were compliant with the Americans with Disabilities Act, 
with um, with the Help America Vote Act. I did a lot of work with UACAVA and other things. Um, and because of that, I got really um, exposed to a lot of national efforts, whether it was the various um, projects at Pew. So working on the election performance index and um, writing the bylaws as Eric was being created. And some of these various projects was really, really interesting. And um, I was very fortunate that the person, the elected official I worked for, just kind of let me represent the the county um, to these all these various efforts nationally, and I was able to bring things back to my local jurisdiction that I learned and really improve the services to the voters of Maricopa County. And that because of those efforts, um, it was after um, 2012 when we saw the long lines of President Obama um, said we needed to fix that and created the Presidential Commission on Election Administration. I was really surprised um, to receive the phone call. I was on Twitter and Facebook that night um, of the State of the Union when it was being announced. And many of us were like, oh, that's going to be really cool. I wonder who it's going to be. Um, but I was really shocked when I got the phone call. I, I figured they were calling to get a reference for somebody else. Um, so when they actually asked it, by scale of interest, um, if I was asked to serve by the president, um, I couldn't help myself and a spinal tap reference came out of my mouth. So I said, well, if it's a scale of one to 10, you know, you can put me down for 11. And the White House attorney on the other side got very quiet. And he was like, um, and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I just said that. And from that point forward, the rest of the phone call was like Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. So um, that was kind of where, where it went. They don't do humor at the White House. No humor. <laughs> Well, I think he was kind of surprised and I was, uh, he wasn't as surprised as I was that it came out of my mouth. So I know Tammy, one, one of the main topics we want to try to cover today has to do with uh, the mail, uh, because that was a huge story in 2020, voting by mail, absentee voting, all those types of things. And I know you, in addition to everything you just mentioned, you've established yourself, at least in my opinion, as uh, a guru uh, of election mail. And one of the things that I really appreciate from you, every time I see a presentation from you and one of your awesome slide decks, by the way, uh, <laughs> I always take away something. But what I think you do very well is you understand the USPS very well, at least to me you do. And you're able to translate to election administrators, the USPS and I think you're probably pretty good at translating to the USPS what election administrators need and want. So you want to kick us off with talking about what your impressions were of, you know, how election mail actually went, because there's a lot of stuff said about it. How did it actually go in 2020? Absolutely. And, and thanks, Eric. It's funny. I often say both to election officials as well as to the Postal Service that I'm a double agent. <laughs> I serve as the translator between the two worlds because everyone has their initialisms, their acronyms, the terms of art that we use. And we don't even think about it when we say things like Yuakava. Um, and other people are like, Gesundheit. You know, they don't, they don't know what, what in the heck you're talking about. So I really appreciate that you said that. Um, it's one of those situations where over the years I've gotten a few nicknames and I think probably the nerdiest one is the former director of the Federal Voting Assistance Program gave me the moniker of the Postal Whisperer. And that's when I knew I'd really arrived as a true election geek because good Lord, that's that's just sad. 
So anyway, with that aside, so what happened this year is really, we saw the changes that we've been making over the last decade in our collaboration with the Postal Service really solidified and brought to the forefront. And what I mean by that is in the last five or six years, the Postal Service finished what they called plant rationalization. So back in 2016, I, I published a report when I was at the Bipartisan Policy Center called The New Reality of Voting by Mail. And it was really just trying to bring to everyone's attention the situation that mail does not just go across town anymore. It goes to a processing plant and those processing plants can be quite a distance from, from a voter's house or from the elections office. And so first class mail takes two to five days. And there were things that we need to be looking at, like our dates and deadlines, registration deadlines, our dates to request a ballot, all of these things to make sure that they align with this new postal reality. Years ago, the Postal Service started sweeping the plants in an hourly basis, making sure that there are what they call all clears on election night um, and implementing better ways to track ballots through the postal stream. So in this moment, we knew coming into 2020 that the former Postmaster Brennan and former Deputy Postmaster Strowman had put into place just reinforcing all of these efforts that we'd done over the years. But then we had a new Postmaster and whether or not that attention was going to be there, um, whether or not there were going to be changes really made people very nervous in a global pandemic. And, um, and I think, you know, there were many of us that were sounding the alarms to make sure that we still could rely on what I've often called their partnership in delivering democracy. So after we had the congressional hearings this summer, um, there was a difference of opinion and uh, no longer was it the case that they were going to continue to remove sorting machines and stop overtime and late trips and things like that, that we know are really important in getting the ballots back. So what we saw this year were some really extraordinary um, measures that the Postal Service took. And even though the volume was a dramatic increase, the Postal Service had really been seeing, you know, a decrease in mail volumes over the years because everyone, you know, does a lot of things online these days. So it was the case that they really did step up into this moment and I think did a, a really amazing job in making sure things were, you know, were delivered on time. One of the challenges that we did have this year, though, is that even though the standard protocol and policy has always been for at least the last five or six years for all the mail to go through the processing plants, and that's where it gets postmarked, that's where it gets sorted. In this moment, there were many places where some election officials had what we call sweetheart deals with their local postmasters so that their ballots would be pulled out and not sent to the processing plants. This has been going on for years in some places. And so as we started approaching November, I, I won't say whether or not either of you are smiling about this particular situation, um, but as we got closer to um, November, the Postal Service sent out their reminder that all mail goes to the processing plants. And everybody that had a sweetheart deal and their secretaries of state and state elections directors were like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? We, ha we can't have that happen in this moment. And so the Postal Service did a complete turnaround and said, okay, we won't send things to the processing plant this year. I personally think that was not a good thing to do because instead of saying, these are the policies, I mean, you imagine you, you both have precincts 
and polling places all across your jurisdiction. And suddenly now you're going to not process everything in the same way. Instead, there are going to be some, whether it's, you know, for the analogy, maybe it's provisional ballots for people whose name is in the last half of the alphabet, you're going to have this different process. Instead of the four to five hundred million mail pieces processed a day, because that's what the Postal Service does, they were going to start this other process for ballots. And what we saw is that it did increase ballots being delivered to election officials and, you know, more quickly because they were kept localized, but it created issues for places that were trying to track ballots. It created issues for ballots that were not local. So ballots that were going to another county for a voter that was, you know, say out away from home or what have you. So that's kind of what we saw. I think we saw the best case scenario with standard practices being kept in place and the adoption and of a couple of practices that we'll see what happens next year. Because that's part of the challenge now is they've set this precedence. And I honestly don't know, you know, what they're going to do the next time a big election comes around. Well, and I do wonder, I mean, I think it's really interesting the the perspective that you brought up about the change in process, because there were so many people with sweetheart deals. And I would venture to guess it was mostly in the states that don't require a postmark on their ballot, because there's no harm in not having a postmark on your ballot if it's not a requirement for it to be counted. And there's a lot of states that are like that. So how do you see, you know, I'm sure the post office isn't here to defend itself, but I, and I don't want to speak for them, but how do you see probably the pressure that election administrators were putting on them to do this because they themselves were getting pressure from voters that the ballot needed to be counted and from legislators that wanted to make sure it was going to be there. How do you see that tension? What advice would you have for elections administrators talking to their post office? Absolutely. And I think that here's part of the challenge is that for the states that allow a voter to make a late request of the ballot. So there are 21 states, I think, that allow a voter to request a ballot in the week leading up to the election. And the Postal Service says, mail your ballot back seven days before it's due, one week before it's due. So we have all of these states that allow a voter to request a ballot that's later than when the Postal Service says to mail it back. So the first thing we need to do is we need to align those dates and deadlines to set the right expectations for voters and then give them some other options in getting the ballot back. So um, so that it still stays in the same process, the same um, procedure of all the other mail. Um, and we're not making these weird one-off exceptions because what we see is that ballots are being pulled out locally, but they might be going to another jurisdiction. In many places that use drop boxes this year, had voters putting ballots in the drop boxes for other states. They're not thinking this is my local drop box for my local for, or for this local elections office. I'm a snowbird living in uh, Texas. I'm going to just drop it in this box or I'm in Florida or I'm in Arizona when they really should be putting it in the mail so it can be mailed back to Wisconsin or back to Illinois or the state of Washington or what have you. So we need to, rather than change some of these policies, we need to um, make sure that all of the dates and deadlines kind of align with it and that we service the voters in the best possible way. So we know that there were tens of millions of ballots that were mailed through the mail stream as I mentioned, there are hundreds of millions of mail pieces every day that go through the mail stream. And when you create these one-off kind of solutions, it can be more problematic in the long run. 
So I think that's one of the things that local um, and state election officials listening need to really take a look at what are the expectations for their voters and how can we really ease the application for the voters so that they can do it for the year um, rather than every single election and then allow them to have a variation in um, in options and returning the ballot, I think is really a better solution. It's a better long-term solution. This was kind of a, a stopgap measure um, in this global pandemic. So if we think about it, that this was a reaction to COVID, this is what the, the policies were, but we're gonna remedy the underlying problems and tensions moving forward, I think we'll all be in a better place. So, Tammy, I think you bring up a really interesting possibility there, which is standardization. I'm sure, and you would know better than me, the post office probably really craves standardization. And I don't know if they ever would admit it, but they probably hate that there's 50, 51, if you include the territories, 50 some odd different deadlines and and stuff. Some are postmarked, some are not. There's been some talk lately in Congress of trying to put some kind of standardization in place nationwide as it relates to mail ballots. And you were mentioning before we started, like, no big deal. You've testified in front of Congress a bunch of times. So, you know, no big deal. But anyway, uh, do you do you foresee or would you be in favor of some kind of federal standardization in terms of request and return deadlines and things like that with mail ballots? So I think that definitely for the requesting, and here's here's part of the tension, and I think why why we have situations where voters can request a ballot in I think it's seven or eight states on Monday for Tuesday's election. Now, if you think about that practically, that makes absolutely no sense. An election official can't get the ballot packet prepared and mailed to a voter overnight. It's just not really a rational way of setting the right expectation for the voters. But if, the, if those states say, we're gonna move our deadline to request it back a week or even 10 days before the election, then they are in a position where it sounds like they're trying to curb voters access, which in reality, what they're trying to do is make this, the system be a successful system for the voter rather than setting them up to fail because allowing a voter to request a vote by mail ballot on Monday is setting them up to fail. Instead, if you have a, a deadline seven, 10 days before the election and then allow in-person voting up until or, or the weekend before election day or election day, depending on you know what the state wants to do, then voters still have options, but you're setting them up to be successful rather than to fail. And I think that, that those are the sort of baselines that I think are um, are the best at the federal level, rather than getting into the minutia of very specifics around what each state should do, having more of a of a floor than a ceiling on some of these things. Whether or not a state you know um, allows for a postmark or they're an in hand state, those can you know kind of be left up to question. I personally think that if you're not allowing for drop boxes or you're not allowing for in-person return of ballots, it makes it very difficult for a voter to get your, the, their ballot back um, if they don't mail it a week beforehand. So I think it's really more of a comprehensive review of what is the most the, the most successful way that you can lay out the policies to prevent any sort of intervention fraud and um, and still allow for voters to be the ones who are in charge of their own voting experience. 
I want to shift gears just briefly because mail is is more than just ballots too, and especially in states that don't have a very high percentage of absentee or they're not a mail-in ballot state. I think there's probably a lot of people that go, I don't really utilize the mail that often, or they would like to, but they don't really know where to start. Um, some places do sample ballots in the mail. Some places do their polling place notifications in the mail. We all have to do canvases. And sometimes it can be kind of intimidating to figure out who you're supposed to be working with, with the post office to get your election mail correct and um, not have it rejected. I was wondering if you could speak to some advice for election administrators in working with the post office or building that relationship so that it might make some things a little more streamlined as they're trying to do more with the mail. Absolutely. And because there has been this growth in both vote by mail and also kind of a reliance upon um, addressing for voter registration, and you mentioned all of the other ways in which the, the Postal Service supports the democratic processes and the, and the ways in which we conduct an election. Years ago, it was the case the Postal Service every two years gave individuals a new task. They were election mail specialists and they were um, an election mail specialist for six months leading up to a federal election, and it was another duty as assigned. But a few years ago, they said, you know what? Elections are ongoing all the time in the states. We need to have these permanent positions. So out on the Postal website, if you Google, I think if you just put in election mail USPS, there'll be an election mail website and there's a map and you can click on the map of your state. You can even, or put in your zip code and it will pull up contact information for everybody that you need at the postal service. It'll tell you who your election mail specialist is. It gives you the number for your regional uh, managers, the individuals that run the processing plants. So they really have tried to put it together in a single place. Um, that's also a good website that gives you information on the mail design specialists or analysts. So when you change your, your mailings, running it by them, which is a free service, they turn it around usually in a day or two um, to make sure that it, it comports with all of the standards that they require um, is really another great resource on their website. Tammy, along those same lines, to share a little bit of my story from this year, we had a situation where we're, our office is out in the burbs. So we're kind of far away from the, the plant downtown where they actually process all the mail. So every day a truck has to bring the mail out to a branch post office near our office where it's then processed and we have caller service there where we go get it. What we ended up finding out because we had unprecedented volume of mail ballots, like so many people did across the country, all of our mail ballots are our business reply mail, BRM. In addition to a lot of other things we send out, we use BRM quite a bit. So what we found out, we would go you know, our caller service, we'd go every morning to pick up our mail like normal. And they would say, well, we're still counting all the BRM mail. It's taking us forever. And we don't have any additional staff. And we found out, it, in my opinion, this was crazy that this truck of mail would come out. And then the people at the local branch would have to count by hand the BRM mail before we could get it. And so they would give us like a tray and they'd say, come back in a couple hours. We'll give you three more trays or whatever the case may be. And I didn't know who the point of contact was to try to fix this. I talked to the local postmaster there at the branch office and he only has so much, you know, sway to get things done. So I just emailed the postmaster of our, 
our whole district here, the Gateway District, and that kind of got the conversation started. And it, it ended up in a good place, and they put some more resources there eventually. But the post office can be very intimidating to an election official. It's like the puzzle palace. I didn't know who to talk to. I was just kind of trying to talk to anybody who would talk back to me. What is your advice there? You run into a situation like that as a local administrator. Who can you reach out to to, to try to get a conversation started? And maybe it was bad on me for not having more of a relationship moving into the election year. No, I think, Eric, it's that's spot on because the way that I talk to the Postal Service about this is that election officials are expected to know everything about everything. All the federal laws are the state laws around um, you know, putting on an election, you're expected to know now all sorts of cybersecurity and um, and technology sort of things. And then in this year, we're also supposed to know, you know, the CDC guidelines and being a, a public health expert. Oh, and by the way, you should understand the hundreds of pages of the, the DMM, the manual for the Postal Service and all of their various standards. It's too much. So that's where we really do need to rely on our partners at the Postal Service to help navigate those waters. The one thing I would say for anyone who doesn't find what they're looking for on that page at, um, on the Postal Service's website is to go ahead and just submit a report through electionmail.org. So electionmail.org we started back in 2016 and when uh, an election official puts in a report there I get an email. Um, the head of election mail at the Postal Service gets an email but what happens is that, that report bridges a gap and goes directly into the Postal Service's resolution tracking system. So it's not just this online portal. It actually is the place for election officials to directly report issues they're seeing to the Postal Service. Um, and so when that happens, the email also sends a trigger and a notification to the regional managers. And because of the different categories that you can select, it gets routed to the right person who can help solve your issue or the, the challenge that you're having. Um, business reply mail, and, and one of the things that you said, Brianna, that I think is, is really important is in this moment, one of the things that we did see is that for jurisdictions that traditionally didn't have a lot of vote by mail, they weren't necessarily paying attention to all of those hundreds of slides of my slide decks because they didn't have to. They didn't have voters voting by mail. They didn't have to worry about BRM or QBRM or ACS or any of these other things that we, we talk about because it wasn't a big part of their roles and responsibilities. It became that this in this moment. That's why we saw um, jurisdictions that haven't reviewed their designs that aren't using the election mail logo. And some of these things that have been around literally for years, if not decades, really had problems and challenges this year in this moment where the volumes were so vast. Um, but you're absolutely right. Navigating those waters can be a real challenge. So putting it into electionmail.org, if you can't find the answer um, on the Postal Service website is I think probably the best place to start. What is, what's the most common thing that you're seeing in terms of if you could tell election administrators, just remember this one thing, what, what are, what do you keep seeing over and over again? One of the things that we have seen repeatedly, and thankfully it has, it has actually gone down and been reduced over the course of this year because so many people did look at their envelopes and that is really reviewing the envelope design and making sure that it is 
actually able to go through the mail stream in the best possible way. So places that the size of your envelope means that it can't go through the, the sorting machines, then it's an out stack, that's a problem. And so really knowing that there are best practices to make the mail go through the system as quickly as possible is, is really the best possible situation. I often think about it because I like to make draw try and draw the analogies to election administration any chance I get. If you think about um, your ballots going through a central tabulator and out stacking you know, your write-ins, right? What if everything has a write-in on it? It just bogs everything down because then you have that manual process. So the more you can streamline the procedures to align with some of the things in the post office. And, and I will say that it's, you know, it's to be understood. These aren't always decisions that a local or even state election official can make. These can sometimes be tied to legislative um, requirements in statute to have certain verbiage on the envelope or you know, whatever the requirement is for the design of the envelope that can be mired in, um, in statutory rule. So I, I also preach this, I get up on my, my soapbox every chance I get for you know, the state legislators, whether it's at, at the National Conference of State Legislators or with, um, with the Council of State Governments to really make sure that everyone takes a look at their own statutes to say, does this still make sense in the way in which our voters are voting in the way in which our modern society is is running and sometimes you don't want your legislators to know there's any election statutes out there but anyway um (laughs) as our time kind of runs short tammy i know another thing you have done in in your whole repertoire of election geekery is communicate with the media and advise the media. One thing we've talked with some other folks about is the, the communications piece for election officials and that what's your advice to election administrators, local election administrators on how they should talk to the media? Should they be proactive in that? How should they talk about election mail? How should they approach that subject? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and it's a real challenge at times because on the one hand, it's very difficult to combat mis and disinformation. Um, And so that can be a real challenge. One of the things that I've tried to do is um, every time I work with the media or do trainings for journalists and editors, producers, is to make sure that they understand that the real experts in the field are election administrators and election officials. And no matter what the story is, make sure you're talking to a couple of them in whatever state you're in to really ground the story in the reality of what's happening. Um, One of the things that I have have tried to kind of drive home with them is it's important particularly for local reporters to know what's right in their state so they can identify what actually is wrong. So when you talk about things like, one of the examples I give when I was in Maricopa County, um, I worked with a woman named Alice and there was a picture taken of Alice with a provisional ballot box. Alice in that provisional ballot box showed up for years in news stories all around the country about provisional ballots. And it's ridiculous, first of all, because that's not what the voters see when they go into their polling place 
they don't see perhaps a red provisional ballot box. Maybe it looks, maybe it's a different color. Maybe there's, you know, a different process. And so it's really important that when mis and disinformation gets circulated to say, look what's happening in Boone County on this piece of voting equipment to be able to say, you know what, that's not the kind of voting equipment they use in that county. Um, and so knowing what's right so you can tell what's wrong and tell the story well is really important. I've tried to create um, webinars and trainings for local reporters that election officials can actually direct their media and press contacts to as a way of saying, here's, here's somebody who has some ideas on story ideas for you on how to cover elections in your local area in a way that is both responsible um, informative, it tells the story beyond the horse race, and really helps to educate the electorate on what the procedures and policies are so that they have confidence in what's happening. Because that's part of the challenge here is in a void, in a, you know, the vacuum will be filled. And the question is, what's going to fill it? Is it going to be accurate information? Or is it going to be something that is not only being perpetrated or promulgated um, out of ignorance, but out of, you know, other motivations, we'll just say. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> Diplomatic. Well, and the other piece of this is that, you know, I, I, I always try and make sure I never try to ascribe any sort of motivation to anyone. But if they tell me what their motivation is and why they're doing something, I will believe them. And that's another important piece of this is that you want to ma maintain your neutrality. And um, I think that the system works best when it is supported for everyone, no matter who they decide they want to vote for or against. And that's really the, you know, the heart of our democracy is making sure that everyone has a chance to weigh in and no one weighs in any greater than anyone else. And no one stops someone who is eligible from being able to be a participant in the process. Um, so vote by mail has traditionally been a GOP bastion in many states. Um, and so that's where suddenly the on the ground party affiliates in those states were like, oh my God, what are we going to do? <laughs> None of our voters want to vote by mail this time around. So it can be a challenge. You have drive-through voting in Iowa being championed as a best practice in a global pandemic and, you know, trying to be shut down in states like Texas. Um, so in a situation where we had more than 400 court cases this election cycle, there, there was a lot to really um, try and, and make sure that the voters understood what the options really were. Of course, so many people follow you on social media, myself included, and one of the most common sentiments I think you had throughout this election was exasperation, at least from my perspective. Oh, it was. It was It was a challenge. One of the things that I think was particularly um, challenging this year is that, you know, for the last, I mentioned that report that I wrote in 2016, none of this was new. Um, so we knew about late deadlines being a challenge. We knew about um, vote by mail applications being problematic in in huge volumes coming in late in the in the the timeline for election officials to be able to get them out. Luckily, we were able to take many of the lessons learned in the primary and remedy those challenges for the the November um, general. But you know, I just kudos to every election official out there because in this moment. 
everyone rose to the challenge in the most heroic fashion, for lack of any other way of putting it, because um, this was a challenge for people in daily lives, putting your personal health at risk, those of your employees, those of your family, um, and making sure that a, a presidential election not only went off without a hitch, and I agree with, with, you know, with Mr. Krebs, this was the most secure election we've ever had. We had unbelievable turnout. You know, it, it was really just an astounding success. And no one had the ability to be able, not that you ever want to sit back on your laurels and be like, we did it. But in this moment, you definitely were not given that opportunity to even take a moment of reflection because of the constant onslaught against the remaining functions of the election, whether it's the naming of the electors to the voting of the electors to um, you know, the eventual inauguration. Well, and I think you really, I mean, you made a very good point about knowing what a lot of these issues were. The pandemic and inequities that we have in, in various parts of our society anyway, and elections was not immune from that. That's exactly what we found was the problems that we had that when they became magnified, became a huge problem. And hopefully that is, I mean, I know we all know it's starting a discussion on what we can do better and what reforms might be helpful and where we can go from here after uh, this major election, especially being four years away. I mean, we're never that far away from another major presidential election. And yeah, exactly. I think what will be interesting in this moment will be to see what the voters want after we get beyond when we finally get beyond COVID. Um, because, you know, when election officials are planning, you always look at your historical trends. And now 2020 is going to have a big old asterisk next to it, right? To say, okay, this was, you know, global pandemic. But for those states where anyone can request a vote by mail ballot, are they going to go back to wanting to vote on Tuesday on election day? Are more of them going to want to vote by mail? Are, are places that have had an expansion of in-person early voting, are voters going to want to continue to have those options um, in play? And that's where it's going to be really interesting in the next particularly legislative session in the states because of all of the rhetoric, because of calling into doubt many of the procedures and policies, it'll be a question of whether or not we're going to see a backlash or will we see states moving to solidify some of the changes they put in place in response to um, to the pandemic? It's always something. Stay tuned, as uh, Doug Chapin always says. <laughs> um, and the one takeaway I would say for election officials to be thinking about for those who maybe aren't as data-driven as others is to really take a look at what the numbers said this year as far as when voters decided to vote how they returned their ballots, what rejection rates were, what happened with provisional ballots in your jurisdiction this time around? Did they go up? Did they go down? Were there policies in place or administrative decisions that were made that can help further that, um, that sort of improvement without any sort of legislative action? So I think that's where we want to make sure that we're, um, we're continuing to capture all the data we can to help um, improve as we move forward an excellent point to end on, I think. Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of High Turnout, Wide Margins, and a big thank you to the super awesome Tammy Patrick for being our guest today. Please join us next time for 
another intriguing episode of High Turnout Wide Margins.